Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book four, chapter three. What did you make of Smolt? So many characters in this chapter. Those are my discussion prompts. There was a lot of characters in this chapter. And I feel like it was a pretty exciting chapter. Like they're trying to have some, uh, what was it, vote? Vote? Or not a vote, but some kind of a meeting to decide. I guess it was a vote in some ways. The word escapes me. You know what I'm trying to say. But anyway, at the same time, they're like trying to storm the capital outside. There's this whole revolution happening and people throwing bricks through the windows, that kind of thing. All very exciting, but also the excitement and the danger and stuff didn't really come across to me that much. Like the sense of danger, the sense of urgency and and I don't know. Did, you, did anyone else get that? I also felt like because at the same time I was getting bogged down with all these names and the actual kind of politics of it as well, which is fine, but what am I trying to say? It was like an action scene, but it didn't make me feel like an action scene. It didn't move at a fast enough pace or allow you to absorb the information fast enough for an action scene. Usually when things get exciting in books, an author will sort of dumb down the language a little bit, dumb down the sentence structure, not give you too much to grapple with, to allow you to read faster and faster because your sense of excitement will become, you know, you become excited. That's what I'm trying to say. And naturally you'll want to read quicker. But this did not allow that to happen at all. So I do feel like I missed quite a lot in this chapter, even though not that much happened. Acoustic Eel says, I love Gosh's character. Such, uh, super dramatic, secretly feels the most alive in a crisis situation. I peg him for a zombie apocalypse prepper, if that was something Germans in 1846 had ever heard of. I hope we see more of him, but I feel like he will just appear sporadically for colour. I don't get why Smolt was shouting at Johan for revolution one minute and then took orders from Johan to go and fetch the rich aristocrat's carriage the next. Is the working class that whipped, whipped, <laughs> um, that's subjugated by the bourgeoisie? Is Johan just very persuasive, perhaps? Star 415 says, It just shows the so the set social order. Smolt, and probably his ancestors, always took orders from that class of people. He did it out of habit, and he is a follower among the rebels, not the initiator of the revolt, not too engaged in the fight. Tony Carlisle says, I'm absolutely convinced that Gosh had secret plans for the apocalypse, zombie or otherwise. I felt it was really interesting how Smolt was part of this revolution against being a servant and then when asked to do something he was like yes sir and it was like I guess showing that it's so embedded in his personality by that point that um, can't help himself perhaps let's read chapter 4 I'm ready goes like this when the consul and Seismund Gosh returned to the hall, the scene was a more comfortable one than it had been a quarter of an hour before. 
It was lighted by two large oil lamps standing on the committee table in whose yellow light the gentlemen sat and all stood together, pouring out beer into shining tankards, touching glasses and talking loudly in the gayest of humours. Frau Sukringle, the widow, had consoled them. He had loyally, sorry, she had loyally taken on her enforced guests and given them good advice, recommending that they fortify themselves for the siege which might endure some while yet. And thus she had profitably employed the time by selling a considerable quantity of her light yet exhilarating beer. As the others entered the house, boy in shirt sleeves and good-natured grin was just bringing in a fresh supply of bottles, while it was certainly late, too late, to consider further the revision of the Constitution, nobody seemed inclined to interrupt the meeting and go home. It was too late for coffee in any case. After the consul had received congratulatory handshakes on his success, he went up to his father-in-law. Liebrecht Kroger was the only man in the room whose mood had not improved. He sat in his place, cold, remote and lofty, and answered the information that the carriage would be around at once by saying scornfully in a voice that trembled more with bitterness than age. Then the mob permits me to go home. With stiff movements that no longer had in them anything of the charm that had been his, he had his fur mantle put about his shoulders and laid his arms with a careless mercy on that of the console who offered to accompany him home. The majestic coach with two large lanterns on the box stood in the street where the consoles, to the great, to the console's great satisfaction, the lamps were now being lighted. They both got in, silent and stiffly erect, with his eyes half-closed. Lebrecht Kruger sat with the rug over his knees, the console at his right hand, while the carriage rolled through the streets. Beneath the point of the old man's white moustaches, two lines ran down perpendicularly from the corners of his mouth to his chin. He was gnawed by chagrin at the insult that had been offered him, and he stared, weary and chilled, at the cushions opposite. There was more gaiety in the streets than on a Sunday evening. Obviously a holiday temper reigned. The people, delighted at the successful outcome of the revolution, were out in the gayest mood. There was singing here and there. Youngsters shouted hurrah as the carriage drove past and threw their caps into the air. I really think, Father, you let the matter affect you too much, the console said. When one thinks of it, what a tomfool business the whole thing was, simply a farce. In order to get some reply from the old man, he went on to talk about the revolution in lively tones. When the propertyless class begin to realise how little they serve their own ends, why, good heavens, it's the same everywhere. I was talking this afternoon with Gosh the Broker, a wonderful man, look, looking at everything with the eyes of a poet and writer. You see, father, this revolution was made at the aesthetic tea tables of Berlin, then the people take their own skin to market, for of course they will be the ones to pay for it. It would be a good thing if you would open the window on your side, said Herr Kroger. Johann Buddenbrook gave him a quick glance and let the glass down hastily. Aren't you feeling well, dear father? he asked anxiously. Not at all, answered Liebrich Kroger severely. You need food and rest, the consul said, and in order to do something... He drew up the fur rug closer about his father-in-law's knees. Suddenly the carriage was rolling through Castle Street. A wretched thing happened. Fifteen paces from the castle gate, in the half-dark, they passed a group of noisy and happy street urchins, and a stone flew through the open window. It was a harmless little stone the size of a hen's egg, flung by hand by some Chris Snut or Hain Voss to celebrate the revolution. Certainly not. 
with any bad intent and probably not desire, directed towards the carriage at all, it came noiselessly through the window and struck Liebrecht Kroger in Lee's chest, which he covered with a thick fur rug. Sorry, which was covered with the thick fur rug. Then it rolled down over the cover and fell upon the floor of the couch. Clumsy fool, said the console angrily. Is everybody out of their senses this evening? It didn't hurt you, did it? Old Kroger was silent, alarmingly silent. It was too dark in the carriage to see his expression. He sat straighter, higher, stiffer than ever, without touching the cushions. Then, from deep within him, slowly, coldly, dully, came the single word, Canale. For fear of angering him further, the console made no answer. The carriage clattered through the gate. Three minutes later was in the broad avenue before the gilt-tipped railings of the bounded the Kruger domain. A driver boarded the chest with chestnut trees, Sorry, a drive bordered with chestnut trees went from the garden gate up to the terrace, and on either side of the gate a gilt-topped lantern was rapidly burning. Sorry, brightly burning. I'm reading everything right, wrong tonight. Oh my god, I can't even say that properly. The console saw his father-in-law's face by this light. It was yellow and wrinkled. The firm, contemptuous set of the mouth had given way, It had changed to the lax, silly, distorted expression of a very old man. The carriage stopped before the terrace. Help me out, said Libretch Kroger. But the console was already out, had thrown back the rug and offered his arm and shoulder as support. He led the old man slowly for a few paces across the gravel to the white stone steps that went up to the dining room. At the foot of those, the old man bent at the knee joints. His head fell so heavily on his breast that his lower jaw clashed against the upper, his eyes rolled, grew dim. Lee Breach Kroger, the gallant, the cavalier a la mode, had joined his father's. Whoa, okay. Just straight up died on his feet. That's uh, <laughs> pretty crazy. But uh, cool, okay. I dig it. That's what happened. That's that chapter for you guys. Thanks very much for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.